All right, guys, welcome back to our most recent roundtable. Uh, last one I missed out on. I had to hop off or I couldn't make it the last second. I know you guys killed it, and I know you guys are now doing your kind of uh, weekly Q and A's as well. So um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how that last one went. I don't know what exactly you guys talked about, but I'm sure it was was great. And obviously, I'm glad to be back on with you guys and doing our uh, back on our monthly roundtable. How's everybody doing? I'm doing great, man. Um, yeah, I feel like Brandon, you and I have gone back and forth a lot. I don't, not a ton going on as far as the business side of things go. We just announced a new coach, Natalie. I am so stoked to have her on our team. Um, I've been mentoring her and coaching her for the last four months and I've just been so impressed. Like everything she's, that's been, that's been a really cool insight because I didn't go into it with the intentions of hiring her at all, but I've just been so impressed with everything she's done where it's like, damn, this is exactly what I would do from a programmer's perspective. But just as important from the way she communicates with clients and the way she cares about our clients, the way she asks questions. So that's cool. I'm super stoked about that. Um, I am getting decently lean in my fat loss phase. It's been interesting working with Brandon and the level of people that you work with. I don't think that what I thought was lean before is nearly as lean anymore because like posting Anthony or even where you're at, I'm like, fuck man. I thought I was pretty, I thought I was like pretty peeled last time I was around this. And now I'm like, man, I still have quite a ways to go before I'm getting there, but super happy with how the process is going. Um, we're on our way regardless. And yeah, things are great on my end. Yeah. Natalie, awesome. Natalie looks, she freaking looked ripped. Uh, oh, she, she, she had a great, uh, little transformation there. Is she doing like a photo shoot or was it just, yeah, we're getting her, her ready for a photo shoot. I mean, it was just, we're actually, the original goal was to set her up for a build. But it was just a case where she was in CrossFit for a long time. She's transitioned to hypertrophy training the last couple of years, and she's built a ton of tissue. But it was just like, hey, I've never been this lean with this much muscle. I want to take it a little bit further. And for her, it's just like, man, everything's going so smoothly. Like, you know how you have some clients where it's, you are making this almost too easy. That's just clicks. That, what's that? It just clicks. Oh, yeah. And that that's her where it's like. This is just going so easy. Your calories are still high. You're losing right around like 0.75% of body weight per week. You are strength is in a good place. Biofeedback is great. Like, let's just keep cruising. But long-term goal is to set her up for a build. But yeah, as of now, we're going to get her ready for a photo shoot. She, yeah, she looks pretty peeled. Is she, you think she has a little, she still has a little bit more in her. And you think that at this point you probably need to get her out of, uh, I mean, right now biofeedback is great and she's still cruising along pretty easily. So we're not, that's like, she could do a photo shoot right now um she's on a two-week diet break currently and then the plan is to just take it like one more weeks but yeah she's already super lean she's already pretty vascular so in reality she could do it at any time but it's kind of like if i do it i want to do it to the best of my ability basically i think the plan is for us to push it to the point where it's okay we're starting to get a little bit of pushback maybe by be back stepping a bit and then we'll probably call it there yeah. Do you guys, do you guys kind of like having an, an inset point or do you, I guess it just maybe depends on the person, but do you like having it be like, Hey, let's maybe push this out a couple more weeks, kind of see where you're at. What, what, in your experience, what do you, have you found to be uh, better? I guess I I'm getting away from this. I really like to, I'm kind of torn on this question. Me personally, I really like someone to always be able to see the path ahead, but at the same time, I think sometimes that comes back to bite you. So like, Jeff, you know what our periodization planner looks like. And I like to lay out like, all right, here's a rough idea of like how the next six months to a year will go. Because I think more than anything, I think that like sometimes 
what I, what I saw when I first started coaching is a lot of times I would help people achieve their initial goal. And then after that, it's kind of like you're just floating in this weird space where we don't necessarily know like what we're working towards the next. So I do like to make sure people can like kind of see our direction. And basically how I like to see it is my clients should be able to explain to a friend, what are you working on right now? Where are you headed over the next few months? But I think that when in the past I've gotten too detailed with that, where it's like, I predict we're going to be exactly this way at this time. It kind of fucks with people's heads. And it's like, hey, maybe you're 130 instead of 128, but we still look great. But then the client's like, well, the goal is 128 and I'm not 128. So I've gotten away from that. I do like, so like in her case, it's like, hey, let's see how your body responds to the diet break. And then I'm projecting it'll be about four to six more weeks, but none of this is set in stone. So I like like a more loose structure there now, but I definitely don't like to be as rigid with that as I used to be, because I think it was turning into something more detrimental than necessarily beneficial. Yeah. What about you, Brandon? Yeah. So this is, <clears throat> this is actually something I've really changed my approach on in the last few years, because you guys both know that I started out really heavy in the contest prep space. And within that, everything was based off of periodization models. And I would backcast from, you know, 16 or 20 weeks out all the way back to the start of the prep. Then I would phase in a pre-prep phase, which I now refer to as a primer phase. So everything was systematized. Everything was periodized. And that was really good because we had an explicit end goal. When it comes to competing, it is you're ready on that date or you're not. And so when I initially started working with more and more lifestyle clients, I really took that same type of mentality into it. And I thought from my perspective, hey, this is giving them structure. This is giving them a routine. This is giving them a goal to shoot for. But what I really realized, it's not that competitors don't have other things in life come up, but fitness and especially getting lean is such more of a priority to them. And they've already built it into the constraints of their lifestyle. So we are, you know, I have a lot more room to play with in terms of their ability to focus and say uh, dialed in and narrow-mindedly focus on that goal. However, with a lot of the individuals I work with now, so if we look at the, the people that I've been working with within the last two years, it's a lot of high-level coaches like Jeremiah. It is high-level executives. I have a lot of, uh, actually, I have a, a large percentage of my roster is from the medical field. So surgeons, doctors, MDs, things of that sort. So they're on call. They have really, you know, swing shifting schedules. You know, they have a lot of life stressors. And that's what I really focus on. And Jeremiah knows this because I've really hit home with this on his own check-ins. We have to realize that as a business owner that has a lot of responsibility on us, especially as our businesses build, we have to reframe our mindset around dieting and around the end goal as well as take more of an auto-regulated approach to things and realize that things in life are going to come up and we really have to be very cognizant of the client's biofeedback. So there were instances in the fat loss phase with Jeremiah himself that we're working towards where I've pulled him back based on his biofeedback. And there's other times that I've had to give him a reminder, like, listen, I know you want to push for a certain rate of loss, but this isn't a, a a loss in and of itself that you didn't hit that this week. You are a busy, productive businessman. You're growing. Look, he just brought on a coach, which I'm extremely proud of you for, because when we first started working together, you had one coach, man, and you've, you've leveled up astronomically. So that's, that's an accomplishment in and of itself. However, these are things we often forget. So I had to bring Jeremiah himself back to the fact that when was the last time you were in a fat loss phase? Your business was half the size that it was now. You have le less life stressors. Now you're uh, placing much more of a priority on your relationship. There's so many other things and I even have to be objective with myself. So last week, Jeremiah and I were on a podcast and you know I'll go into more about my fat loss phase after we finish this up and give a little recap. But 
I had my first photo shoot of the summer last week, and it was with a photographer uh, that is an IFBB pro. So he's really good behind the camera, but he also knows a lot about physiques. And both of us had to be very objective with, with me and my physique and where it's at right now. And I'm not where I've been previously. And that both in terms of compared to me on the competitive stage, actually today was the anniversary, three years that I haven't stepped on stage. And um, so I'm looking back at these pictures. And at first I was really critical on myself and he was, you know, objectively critical on me as well, because he's worked with me so many times in the past. This individual, his name is Gennaro Bergante. He's a professional photographer and an IFBB pro. And we've landed three uh, covers over the last five years together. So he's very familiar with my physique, how it looks at photo shoots, both raw edits, you know, raw unedited photos, as well as, you know, what they look like right behind the camera screen. And I just, I wasn't coming together. I was having a hard time contracting. Obviously I've had multiple surgeries on my abdomen. So it was, I wasn't also being able to, you know, pose the way that I normally would, but then also my physique was still not at the level that it's been previously. And I had to remind myself, listen, I had a surgery. I was in a car accident last year. I had surgery where I didn't train for an entire summer. I did lose tissue probably more than I expected. and, And it's really been visible as I've died it down. And then also the place that I'm in with my business and my life at the current moment my physique isn't the top priority. So I can't compare myself to where I was five years ago, where I was on the national stage and top 10 in the country. And I was very competitive, but I just have to work towards being the best version of myself. So even within my own fat loss phase, I'm not going towards um, an external goal, an extrinsic goal. This is all intrinsic. This is for me to push myself to see my limits, to make sure that I could still go there because I didn't do this last summer. And every summer since... 2011, I've done photo shoots all summer. So this is something that's been ingrained into my lifestyle. And so now I kind of take it on a month by month basis with clients. And sometimes I will have a preset goal with them, like a vacation, a honeymoon, um, a photo shoot. You know, um, like right now I have one of my clients, I'm preparing him for a, a video um, shoot because he's a, a professional musician. And he's going to be doing something for YouTube and for MTV and a couple other uh, associations. So I'm getting ready. And this is our last week. So I'm kind of like peaking him for that. Um, and then I'll have other individuals like Anthony, who's going on stage. But really, I, I like taking it week by week. And I really like taking an auto-regulated approach. <clears throat> so I can really, it, it isn't this dead set deadline where people feel pressure and feel extra, you know, there's enough pressure and there's enough stress within a fat loss phase itself to not add on additional stress, especially within the context of a lifestyle client who their physique isn't their number one priority. And they might want to be the best version of themselves, but if it's going to cause them to put so much pressure on themselves that they're going to, you know, it's going to derail them mentally and physically and get them to go off the diet or feel like they're a failure if they don't hit their rate of loss. I would rather just say, Hey, listen, we have an open, you know, um, end date. And we will get there when we get there. Maybe we'll incorporate more diet breaks. Maybe we'll pull back more. We'll incorporate more deloads. And it gives us some flexibility within the, the goal itself. Yeah, this I, I feel like it's it's tough because on the one hand, I do like having like kind of an end date. I know and I think you have to take the specific person into consideration as well. Cause like for example, Jeremiah, when we've done well, like anytime I've done a cut, but at least the last other than many cuts, like all my cuts, I've put something at the end because I feel like for me, that's gonna give me that extra like little push to like, you know, like you guys know how it is when you're when you're getting leaner, you're trying to lean out, like you anytime temptations come up, it's like, if you, I feel like if you have that kind of end goal, you know, when it's going to end, it's easier to say no. But I've also had clients too, where like, you know, we kind of said, Hey, this is the amount of time we're going to be in the fat loss phase. And then we get to that point and it's like, they want to push it a little bit more. And I had one client that we did push a little bit longer and it probably would have been better to just take a diet break and and transition out of it. But I've also had clients that are, are a little bit more overweight and have more body fat to lose where it's like, they can keep going a little bit longer. So I, I find that it's, I think it depends on the person as well. Um, but I just know from my experience and how 
I am. I know I like having that like kind of set date and uh, to finish it because it just helps me stay on track and um, keeps me a little bit more accountable. Right. But like you said, you can also have that added stress of being like, Hey, I have to have it by this time. And depending on what you have going on, that can, that can make it tough. But again, I think it just comes down to the person um, there on that. So. Absolutely. So Jeff, catch us up. You know, you and I, I actually just looked on my podcast app. We, us three have not been together on a podcast for like seven weeks. So it's been since the first week of July, Jeremiah and I talk every week, whether it's on a coaching call or on a podcast, but catch me up. I'll catch you up. And uh, then we can go into some questions. Yeah. First of all, that was, that was my bad on the, on the last one. That was why we uh, had a, we had that one scheduled, I think for the end end of July, but um, yeah, man, on my end, uh, let's see, business-wise, everything's going good, feeling good there. Um, Doing a free workshop this upcoming week um, on the 30th. So just, I like teaching. I found out that that's one thing I like doing. I like kind of having like a group setting and just being able to teach for an hour and just kind of talk. And, uh, you know, just because like most people, it's like clients will listen to you and stuff like that. But then like people, I feel like people that you like that you're your friends and that you hang out with and like obviously my fiance like they don't want to listen to me talk about this shit. So it's like, you know, you, you can't just keep talking about it. So um, I, I found out that I do, do just kind of like to, you know, talk for an hour and present on topic. So I'm doing that. Um, that'll be fun. That's next week. And then as far as training goes, I'm just still building, um, just gaining some weight. Uh, me and Jeremiah decided, you know, I wanted to stay a little bit leaner this time around. I've liked that from the aesthetic standpoint, you know, I definitely like the way I'm looking right now. You know, I can definitely see things, you know, I see my apps starting to go away, which is fine, but I still feel like I still feel bigger and I don't feel overly fluffy where I feel like in the past, I've kind of rushed that and gotten a little bit fluffier than I needed to. And obviously, you know, talking to you guys, Brandon, Jeremiah, like that's been super helpful. And I think one thing's definitely the steps that's been super helpful, making sure I'm getting those in. Like the more I learn about that, the more I'm like, damn, you know, I definitely missed the boat there on that previously in terms of making sure I still got my, my steps in during, um, a building phase, but training's going really well. Uh, we were doing four days a week and I was telling Jeremiah, I really liked it. Cause like, like my numbers were just progressing, like just really good. And, 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 and um, exceptionally good. Last yeah. Cycle we had. And I think it's extra, I think it's exercise selection has something to do with that too. Like we've definitely shifted more towards, you know, it's, it's less barbell work. Right. I think that's definitely been helpful there. Um, and, you know, I, I added in more cable type work and that's been helpful, but also just going down four days was super helpful. Like that, that just allowed me to really push my training performance. And really, I kind of had like a, this thought process, I, I talked to Steve Hall and then like myself, I'm like, man, you know, I definitely could be looking at my numbers better and really pushing myself in my training. And that just like really kind of jump started me there um, with that. And then now we went up to five days and I liked four because I was able to really push it. I felt like, and it was nice having that one day off in the middle of the week, but I did miss training five days a week. And I like, I like a little bit shorter workouts. Um, they're just, I, I don't know. It's like, I don't know. I just feel like I can stay a little bit more focused in those, in those workouts. It's like, I don't have as much, when you don't have as much to do in front of you, I feel like you can stay more focused. And that's, that's how I've, I've been trying to do that with everything. I've been trying to do that with my business, everything, like just trying to focus more on certain things rather than just like trying to do everything. Right. Cause I feel like when you just focus on one thing, you can really dial that in rather than, you know, trying to spread yourself thin with, with everything. So that's where I'm at. I'm about sitting at like 164, 165. Um, and we're just going to keep building right now and just keep trying to grow as much muscle as I can. So. Awesome, man. Good stuff. 
Yep. And Brandon, what about you? I know you're uh, in the middle of a, are you still doing fat loss or did you? Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, so. I'm deep in at this point, guys. So right now I'm, I just started week 12 of my current fat loss phase. So I'm in what I call the digging phase where, you know, progress is slow. It's hard to come by. And honestly, it's hard to see visually. And um, this is where like my dieting experience really comes in handy. As I've been here so many times before, like over the years, especially having done 15 preps over the years. So I come to expect this, especially we've spoken about this numerous times, um, all three of us, the fact that I have a really extremely adaptive metabolism. So I don't let it get to me mentally. And this is actually right before this call, I was actually on a call with a client and I was going over this. And this is like a topic a lot of people don't really hit on or they don't really pay attention to. And it's, we've all been here. We've all gotten to the point where many start to misinterpret what we're seeing visually and what they see on the scale. And um, for this specific client, like I was on call with him, and it was, I was explaining that if you're seeing consistent loss week to week from a set amount of calories and macros, so we have them on a plan, we have everything situated. And in this person's case, he had a really stressful week and he started seeing these fluctuations in the scale and in his body weight. And it was despite the fact that he was sticking to the plan. He was saying he was completely adherent. We've been working together for quite some time. So I believe in him. I trust him. So really what I was trying to get back to him, and I have to do this for myself too. This is a reminder to me. So it was a great conversation to have. So I do want to share it with the audience is you need, if you're hitting everything on point, you need to trust that you're still on track. Even if you see these fluctuations, because if you have a sufficient deficit and a great plan in place, you will be making progress, even if it isn't visible day to day or week to week. And I think this is something that many of us need to remind ourselves of um, because it's super easy to get frustrated and discouraged during the latter portion of a diet. And I'm right there. So that's actually, I made a post yesterday where I did a physique update and I was trying to be really transparent in the fact that I'm digging right now. Like I'm at the point where for every little half pound of, of weight loss or fat loss, like it's a grind. And we need to realize that our body isn't a machine. Like um, we're going to have fluctuations and we're going to have other factors outside of our training and our nutrition, which is going to impact, you know, what we see in the mirror, what we see on the scale. And it's important to realize this because, you know, I'm sure you guys can attest to this. We encounter so many individuals who will get into a situation where they see their scale weight either stall or even go up in cases. And it's over the course of just a few days. And they'll think something is wrong or the diet isn't working anymore. Um, but we have to realize the human body is so dynamic. So it's not like within the course of a few days, you went from effectively losing fat loss and seeing progress both visually and on the scale. And all of a sudden your metabolism broke, you know what I mean? And it, and you went into starvation mode. So this is when it's like the most important time to realize that fat loss progress is never going to be linear and to just keep doing what you've been doing in terms of hitting your daily intakes, um, getting your water in, hitting your steps, training hard and trust that you will see progress once you weather that storm. And that's right where I'm at. So it was a great conversation to have. And I'm sure you guys can can relate to that. But this is also where I really come back down to consistency. And I'm consistent in everything that I do. You guys know from a podcasting perspective, I'll always be here. Or from a content perspective, I'm always going to, you know, put out a post. I have not missed a single post since 2017 in terms Same. of my Instagram or Facebook. You know what I mean? This is who I am. But I also have to remind myself that this is one of the most important parts of thriving in a fat loss phase. And I always try to get this across to my clients because I'm a big believer in creating a consistent daily routine so I can micromanage both my time and my energy. And the latter, like the, the energy is really important at the end of a diet. Um, so my main focus right now is just on executing the plan, ticking off the boxes, and just being as consistent as possible in every aspect of my life, especially from my training perspective, my energy management perspective, my work perspective, making sure that I get a large chunk of both my steps and my work done in the early portions of the day so that when I start feeling, you know, 
fatigue coming on towards the latter portion of the day, which I am, I'm feeling very hungry, very lethargic, things like that. I have a lot of the diet-induced metabolic adaptations and side effects of being at a low percentage of body fat. So I try to get a big chunk of my work and everything done early in the portion of the day. And I'm also trying to make as little decisions as possible because when you're in a dieting scenario, especially when you're getting really lean, like you're already suffering from diet fatigue where you don't need to compound that with decision fatigue. So at this point, I'm trying to like limit the decisions I make. So really what I do is I try to make this construct in the beginning of my week. I sit down on Sunday and I plan out all my calls for the week, but I also plan out all my meals for the week. So I'm looking at, you know, I make sure that I set my weekly plan for my nutrition, my steps, my training, any adjustments I need to make within that, that I wouldn't make on a day-to-day basis in terms of like auto-regulation. Like within my training, I might auto-regulate little things, but I'm just focusing on you know, setting a plan on Sunday when I have the mental currency, the mental capacity to really think about things and then just executing each and every day, you know, Monday through Saturday or Monday through Sunday. And um, so that's that's pretty much how my current fat loss phase is going. Um, but besides that, business has been going extremely well uh, in terms of my clients. And I'm actually going to be going away. That's why we had to schedule this for today. Tomorrow, I'll be going away for a little bit of a beach holiday uh, starting, you know, this weekend and extending it out to next week, um, which I'm really looking forward to as I've literally not had one day off all summer. Like I have not taken a break, especially because this summer, as you guys know, I made the transition from a full-time corporate job and part-time coaching to full-time coaching. So I really, honestly, I put my all into this and, um, you know, obviously I took on a ton more clients, which I'm pleased with. I'm having great results with them and great experience, but I've just really kind of worked myself seven days per week and just not taking a day off, not taking a night off. I live by the beach and I have yet to go to the beach, but I'm actually going to travel to another beach location. Um, so I'm really looking forward to getting away for a few days and just looking at this as like a reset before, um, you know, the end of the summer, because it's coming up really, really quickly, man. I can't believe that we're already at our August, you know, coaches roundtable. We started this months back and it's actually the last week of August. So we're, we're almost in our fall season it's it's flying by dude and yeah definitely definitely take that vacation man it always always feels good to take a few days off like that and just get away from work for for a little bit even though we love this stuff it's always nice to do that um also man i i, I agree i think planning ahead is just so key i i always find like for me one of the biggest things that i've like changed over the last years is i you know and, and i've done this to other aspects of my life is like i started doing like meditation in the morning like 10 minutes and just doing some breath work right and man i'll tell you what that's just so helpful because I know me and I'm sure everybody else is like this too. It's like, you just get so caught up in like, if you're never like planning ahead or like just stopping and like thinking about what's going on, it's like, you can just get so in your head about stuff and you don't realize what's actually going on until like, you know, you do something like that where you just take a little bit to, again, get out of your head, kind of look at the bigger picture. And like you you know, like you said, plan ahead, make sure you have your week set up because I feel like if you don't do those things, it's like things just kind of happen to you. Right. And I feel, I, I feel like if that is you, it's like, you definitely need to get better at, at planning ahead and just like kind of stopping and seeing where, where things are going. Um, I have a, I have a question for you, Brandon, how, how lean are you right now and how lean are you planning on getting? This is an interesting question. I actually just had this conversation with Brian Borstein. He was going back and forth with me via DM about um, RMR calculations and all these different things. Um, anthropometrically, uh, I'm not doing any body comp assessments. I actually just did a large deep dive on body comp assessments for my podcast and the inaccuracy within them. So in previous years, I have done DEXA. I have done... Um, multi-frequency BIA, which would be in a lab. So those are the most accurate for BIA, but they're still 15, uh, 5 to 13% off, uh, according to the research. Um, and then there's other, the bod pod, things of that sort. So I'm not taking any um, 
objective measurements in that point. I'm really just going off of look and then off of photo shoots. And um, I actually shoot every year with a collection or a you know a collective group of photographers. I shoot with them at different aspects uh, or in different locations, but I shoot with the same photographers every summer. I have every summer for a, you know, a number of years. And what I do is I generally do, it's funny because Brian does a very similar thing, which is why it was, it was great to communicate with him about this. But I have one photographer that uh, his name's Michael. I'll be shooting with him this weekend while I'm on vacation. But um, I've been shooting with him every single summer since 2015. So we have a portfolio of, of pictures and we usually go to the same beach um, front location, the same boardwalk. And I do kind of a comparative analysis. So we have like documentation of all my progress over the years. And, you know, in this year, it won't be as good as it was previous years. I'm going to know that, but I, you know, I'm really just doing this for the process. I also have a few clients that are really deep into contest prep and I'm a big believer in walking the walk. And, um, you know, I have a couple guys that they're looking to get back to the Olympia level stage, which is the paramount. It's the, the highest, you know, level that you can get to in competitive bodybuilding. And although I'm way past, you know, competing, and that's just not my focus because I am so focused on my clientele and on building my business, I still want to be able to get in the trenches with them. You know, I go, you know, I went up to shoot uh, a YouTube video with Anthony uh, Scalzo, one of my IFBB pros this past week, and it just actually went live today. And uh, I just wanted to be able to relate to them. And that was last summer. I kind of missed out on that. You know, I always like being someone that has, you know, walks a walk and anything that I, I speak on on a podcast, I've done myself or anything that I promote to my clients, I've done myself or would, would be willing to do myself. And I just have a lot of clients in fat loss phases. And I think it's a great way to not only relate to them, but also show them uh, leadership by example. And I'm really big on leading from the front in that capacity with everything that I do. So when I talk about education, I'm that person up at 3 a.m. reading PubMed studies. You know, when I speak about, you know, really putting out content and really being consistent with it, I'm that person posting every single day. Uh, when I talk about being consistent with your diet, I'm that person nailing my diet, you know, seven days out of seven. So I really try to not only promote principles and speak on evidence-based practice, but also, and that's actually funny because we have a question about that, but I also really believe in entrenching myself into it myself. And, um, you know, this is really just an opportunity for me to grow, uh, not only as a coach, because I learned through every single fat loss phase that I have, and I have more data sheets and, you know, um, files on my computer of past diets and preps that I I've done than anyone you would probably ever think of. I'm, I'm very into analytical data tracking for myself. Doesn't mean it always has to be that way with clients, but um, I really do embrace this for everything that it provides me with. And like I said, I'm in the digging phase, so I, I would I'd be lying to you guys if I wasn't suffering. If I didn't feel low energy, like I've been up 14 hours at this point, like I'm I'm shot. But there's also huge a huge opportunity for growth within this process where we're able to not only uncover a better physical version of ourselves but also a better mental version of ourselves and i think that dieting is a great um it provides you with a great experience for life because there's going to be setbacks. There's going to be challenges in life as well as in a diet. And sometimes that diet's like a compressed time period of that where you're hitting those setbacks. You feel frustrated. You feel like you're putting your all into something and you're not getting back what you want. However, that's the same thing in case in life. But if you keep pushing, you will get to the point where you do see progress, both in terms of your physique, as well as in any other endeavor. And if you just take what you've learned and Jeff, you and I did a podcast on this lessons learned from bodybuilding and from fitness. And if you're able to take the tenacity that you, you know, and the intensity that you learn within your training in the gym or the consistency and the discipline and the structure that you take from a fat loss phase where you really push yourself in the context of dieting and you apply that to any other aspect of your life, whether it be your relationships, your business, your intellectual pursuits, you will get so much further than most people. So I just do it for that, honestly. 
Yeah, no, that's awesome. And I feel like too, definitely fat loss is just so mental, especially the leaner you get, like you said, when you do have to get to that, you know, the digging phase, it, it's it's like that. Jeremiah, real quick, what about you, man? How much longer are you going to go and how lean are you going to get um, in your fat loss phase? Man, that's actually a good question. I or, haven't thought very much about. Or is that the question we have to ask the, your, your coach that question? I don't feel like I'm not really doing it to get to a certain end point. I know Brandon and I talked about this on our initial call also, but like similar to you, I have a lot of clients in fat loss phases right now. I have a couple of clients doing a photo shoot this weekend. And I just want to be leaning from the front. I want to be leading by example. Um, again, I also think that last time I was this lean, it was the leanest I had ever been. And so like for me previously, like before that, I thought when I was like 205, it was shredded. Whereas now it's like, man, I still feel like I could go quite a bit further before I want to. So, man, I honestly right now I'm just enjoying it. Um, it's not really about the outcome at all for me. I really, I could probably do better talking about what I'm doing still on social media and things like that. But man, I just really value knowing like I'm similar to what you said, like I'm nailing my meal plan. I'm nailing my macros. I hit my steps every day and just knowing that I'm doing what I'm telling my clients to do. So honestly, dude, I feel like I'm pretty lean, but I could definitely push it quite a bit further. So we'll see. I don't know Brandon, you have any additional yeah. thoughts no, on that? I've yeah, if you don't mind, if I, I speak for you a little Absolutely. bit, just because you and I speak, I mean, you check in with me multiple times a week. We speak multiple times, whether it be on a Zoom call or on a podcast. So I think that I can give a, uh, an objective viewpoint, but I can also speak somewhat on your behalf, just mm -hmm. based from a coaching perspective. And I think that we all have beliefs about where we've been and where we can be. Mm -hmm. So in Jeremiah, just some context for the audience, when Jeremiah first came to me, it was for a specific date. It was for Bali. He, we were mm -hmm. doing a mini cut. It was going to be a six week compressed mini cut an assertive rapid fat loss phase. Essentially, this is very similar to what Jeff and I just covered on a podcast on mini cutting. So you guys can refer over to that episode for the ins and outs of mini cutting in and of itself as a phase. But then we realized that he was unable to go. And so he wasn't going to be able to you know, make the trip essentially. And so we decided to recalibrate things, slow the rate of loss, and just really rethink things. But at the same time, every week, you know, it, it's not that we haven't hit any hurdles or things of that sort, but we've really adjusted and he's grown in the process first and foremost. He's also shown a much better leadership role within the context of his coaching, like he's mentioning. Like I love seeing, because I have a lot of clients that will tag me on their walks or with their steps. And I see Jeremiah doing that now too. And this was something he never did. And so I love seeing that because I see all his clients and sometimes they'll tag me in it. So it's like Cade will tag me or Natalie will tag yeah. me in something. And I love seeing that. And so he's being a great leader first and foremost, but also... And, and this is both a biased perspective from a coaching perspective, but also an objective perspective. I know he's got more, you know, because I see his biofeedback. I'm looking at his metrics. I'm looking over his training. I'm looking over every parameter. And there, there's been times where I've pulled him back and said, listen, we're going to take off from steps. We're going to eat up today. Like there's been times I've pulled him back and that's the role of a coach. It's not only to know when to push, but when to pull back. But I will say, I think there's a lot of potential in Jeremiah that it's unlocked. And he kind of made a comment about how he sees other people within my team that we all have different goals. Just like Anthony is going to be on the pro stage and I have to get him into shredded condition. That's not my goal. And that's not going to be Jeremiah's goal. But I think that just becoming a better version and shooting for being a better version of ourselves is the main goal here. And I have no, and I'll say this on air. And so this is, you know, you guys always know that anything that I say, I always will vouch for. I, I only put out information if I truly believe in it, whether it's from the evidence or it's from my own opinion. And I, I truly think that we're going to get him leaner than he's ever been. And we're going to be able to bring a much better look, whether it's for a photo shoot or it's just for some, some photos that he takes for me. But I will say that, and this isn't to, you know, pump you up because I'm, I'm a very objective coach. And I believe that we should build our clients 
clients up, but not by bullshitting them. So this is a very objective opinion. He sent me pictures yesterday post-training and that was the best photos that I've ever seen from him. And I have check-in photos from him at his what he claims to be his leanest, both flexed and in photo shoot photos. And the first part of any check-in that I do, and I always tell my clients this off the bat, the first thing that I do is I want to get an objective assessment of what happened throughout the week in a visual analysis. So I don't look at their check-ins first. I look at their photos and I pull them up on two screens. So I have two laptops pulled up and I'll compare them over the course of weeks. And then I'll also compare the first photos that they sent me. In Jeremiah's case, I'm looking at the first photos he sent me, but along with that initial intake that I had him send me, I also had him send me, where was your leanest state ever? I want both like pictures taken, you know, in your bathroom, like regular check-in photos, and then your photo shoot photos, because we obviously know there's going to be some lighting and some pumping up and stuff. So I'm able to objectively look. And, and I did that last night or yesterday evening when he sent me those photos. And in my opinion, he's already almost there, or if not there, if we were to put him, you know, I peek him a little bit, we get him in a photo shoot, he would beat those previous photos. However, I, I know he's still got more because I see his biofeedback. Oh, yeah. So I know we're going to get to another state. And even you mentioned uh, in this week's check-in, like you think you got a couple more pounds we can pull off. And I agree. And uh, we're going to push until you, you know, we either reach that goal, you see what you want to see in the mirror, or we decide, and this will be a, a mutual decision. Hey, listen, business is really getting stressful. I'll be the first person to tell you, if your life stress gets too high, I'm going to pull you back. We're going to diet break, or we're going to go right into a reverse dieting phase or whatever the next, what it makes most sense at that moment. Yeah, man. That's, I don't want to take it too much of our time chatting about this, but I'll say like, as of now, it hasn't really felt hard yet. Whereas that thing's just my perception. Like last time I was close to this, it felt so fucking hard. Whereas like now it's like, man, we're cruising. I think part of that too is I don't go get fucked up twice a week. <laughs> and I think that really, really helps quite a bit also. But I mean, it's, I still think we have a lot in the tank. So I'm excited. I'm excited to see where the next couple months take us. I, I know you don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I do think it's valuable for people that are listening. So like, what do you think are the biggest things for you this time around that, you know, you've been able to get to this? Is it added more muscle than the last time or is it just maybe your methods that you're or can you attribute tribute it to really anything or it's hard for me to be objective honestly um i know brandon like i didn't in those pictures i sent you before i didn't have my legs but i had no lower body at all i still don't think i have that much lower body but it's better than it was before so i mean take that with a grain of salt honestly i think the meal plan is a big part of this i was just talking about a podcast i recorded with our team as well where like i'm not trying to play the flexible dieting game nearly as hard right where i'm much more dialed in i think like as a whole there have been two instances across our six to seven weeks where like hey i decided to like have a glass of wine and like some baked uh salmon not salmon sea bass with katie but i of course still made, made it work. work yeah yeah right but those have really been the only deviations whereas it's honestly i think from that perspective like i'm eating very satiating foods i'm eating a fuck ton of spinach every day like i'm i'm doing from like i'm eating very filling foods i know that i'm hitting my micronutrient needs i'm not again playing the flexible dieting game or like trying to save a ton of calories for later it's all focused on like and i think part of this is too just me getting older like again we don't go out and party there's not like college game days where we're tailgating anymore which was the case like in 2019 where it took me like nine ten months to get to this condition so it's just a lot i think it's just a different phase of life first of all i am much better at the skill of dieting like that the first time i was here that was like the first time i had successfully dieted to the point where i'd gotten extremely lean so i think it's just a part of again like the skill acquisition over time as well yeah, no, I agree. I think that diet skill is is huge, man. Cause you just you just know yourself better and you know what's gonna work and, and what you need to do. And yeah, I think for me that that was one that I attribute to it being easier as well as just the, the the skill of dieting. And as Brandon, you know, and 
you know, that's, that's definitely a, a thing, right? How dieting is a skill, just like anything. So cool. Um, I think we summed everything up there pretty good. So what's, uh, you guys ready for some questions? Let's get it. Cool. All right. So we'll start with this first one. What are your thoughts on using an IIFYM approach? So, uh, if it fits your macros approach during contest prep, um, we were kind of going to say that Brandon, you would take it from more of a prep perspective and then we can take it more from just like a, a fat loss perspective. So Brandon, you can start off uh, with this one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I got to say, uh, and this is something that I hit on often. I find that like many within the nutrition industry take a reductionistic look or approach to dieting where they only consider one aspect of the equation. So it's either you're eating clean or you're doing if it fits your macros. There's like no in between. And so when I was discussing it with this individual, they were like, listen, I want to fit in flexible foods. You know, I, you know, they kind of reference like Alberto Nunez. And what they don't realize is the skill that this individual has, the years in the trenches that he has. And also the fact that Alberto in and of himself has a very, uh, he's got a very high total daily energy expenditure. So if you look at his actual dieting logs, um, and, and this, you know, this person actually spoke about, you know, Berto in and of himself, how he does pop tarts and, and protein shakes and things like that. And I was like, listen, you can't compare, like you shouldn't be doing a calorie analysis or a calorie comparison of someone that moves so much more than you has so much more tissue than you and so much more experience like Berto's 20 plus years into the trenches. So I don't want to, you know, say that, you know, they were just speaking about Alberto in and of himself, but I really had to come back to the fact that you're not that individual. And so for those in the general, if it fits your macros camp, they'll say you can eat whatever you want and you could still get lean. And yes, from a theoretical perspective, this is, is true because if we look at our energy balance, you can eat whatever foods you want as long as it fits within your calorie and your macro needs and budget. So it's definitely possible. But if I had a client who wanted to get to essential levels of body fat, which is what we're doing for a contest prep, that is a requirement of getting on stage, which is a much different level of conditioning than a regular fat loss phase like you two are going to hit on. You know, I'd ask them a few questions, and this is generally what I do when I have someone come to me and they want to take a strictly a fit your macros approach. They don't want to talk about nutrient density, about micronutrients. Like they really just want, hey, give me just macros and that's it with no food suggestions, with not anything else. I always get back to this conversation. And really, one of my key goals as a coach is to help people think critically. So what I do when someone comes to me in this scenario, and this is, I told this individual, listen, I'm going to cover this on the podcast and I'm going to, going to um, give out some questions that I suggest or that I do with my own clients that come to me in a very similar scenario. So I really want you to take this and, and listen to it and actually propose them to yourself because I want you to think critically about wanting to take this type of approach, especially towards the tail end of a prep when things get hard. So first of all, how many competitors have you seen fit any and every single item that they've wanted into their macros and A, gotten stage lean and B, been able to stick to their diet in terms of their macro and calorie targets from an adherence perspective? Because I'll tell you personally, over the past decade, um, I've seen a few people do it and even had a few clients who've been able to do it. But in most cases, they've had higher intakes because they do have higher levels of muscle mass, like in the case of Alberto or a couple other clients that I've had, and they have really high physical activity levels. So their daily energy expenditure is much higher. And in this person's case, he was an office worker. So it didn't really make sense. And we have to realize that a lot of times what we see on social media, we're looking at the outliers. You're looking at the people with better genetics or better experience, and, and you're only seeing a part of the equation. You're only seeing one meal that they fit in, and you're thinking that, oh, every single meal is this really flexible, like delicious meal, all enticing meal. And 
really when it comes down to it, I'll tell you probably if I had to give like an estimate, like maybe of all the clients that I've dieted down the stage, maybe five out of a hundred, you know, out of every hundred that I've brought to stage or done shows with have been able to take a completely flexible approach. And I don't mean like there's a difference between flexible dieting where we fit things in like Jeremiah's looking at food swaps that are, you know, equated in terms of calorie content. And there's a difference between going through a, if it fits your macros approach with really highly processed foods. And, you know, within that, I think it's really important to realize that hyperplatable foods are pretty much designed for overconsumption. You know, we see that they drive not only food intake, but calorie intake, even when subjects are not dieting. So couple that in with the fact that your hunger is, you know, significantly increased during a diet, especially a contest prep and eating hyperplatable foods is pretty much a recipe for disaster, especially when it comes to actually hitting your macronutrient targets. And so in my own case, I'm a big believer in lowering the palatability of foods throughout the diet to help manage hunger and lower the likelihood of passive overconsumption, and also to make sure that my clients are in an energy deficit, but not in a micronutrient deficit, because that's often what I see when I have someone come to me and they've been utilizing a very, very flexible, if it fits your macros, eat whatever I want approach. I'm you know, type, typing their, their food intake into chronometer, I'm seeing a wide variety of micronutrient deficiencies, and they're showing those ramifications or those effects, not only in their hormone profiles and in their blood work, but also in the signs and symptoms, like their lack of satiety, their ravenous hunger levels, lack of sleep, feeling cold all the time, which is an indication of thyroid issues. So, you know, we have to really think about it. Sometimes like I'll have this conversation with clients and I'm always like, you know, there's a reason why they're saying like, you just can't eat one or once you pop, you know, once you pop the fun, don't stop, or there's always room for dessert. And it's because these things are true. Like, you know, hyperplatable foods are extremely enticing and they drive you to eat more rather than filling you and making you want to eat less. So this is really where I look to lowering the palatability of the foods throughout the course of a prep, especially when you've lost more fat and are more susceptible to increase hunger and increase drive to eat. And I find that to be a really good strategy to manage hunger and increase the likelihood of succeeding within that prep. Yeah. Um, I think that's a great perspective. And again, to take it a little bit different from the lifestyle approach where we're not getting people to those peeled levels. I still, man, more and more, I think there's room for some flexibility, but I don't think similar to what we touched on before. I think for a lot of people, like in the gin pop space, a lack of organization is one of the biggest things like with nutrition specifically that holds them back from getting results, right? So most of the time this manifests as like just playing macro Tetris every day, like, hey, cool, I'm tracking my macro, so I'm just gonna eat whatever I want and plug it in at the end of the day. And that very rarely works out where more and more, and that's not even from a health perspective, like alongside that, like we work with a lot of women. So, and I'm not sure if this is as prevalent in men, but I seem to like anecdotally see a lot more women where it is a lot more likely, at least again, from what I'm seeing that, there probably are going to be some micronutrient deficiencies that we need to make sure we're taking into account as well. Right. And so many people, it's like, man, there's just like, you're hungry all the time. Like it looks like we have to push calories extremely low to continue to get you to lose. Whereas like we could get you so much more full, we could better nourish your body. You could feel so much better. You could see better results where what I've seen is there is like the rare individual. I would say like when I was really like playing the IAFYM game with clients, my our rate of client success and people actually achieving their fat loss targets was so much lower because I think initially, like when someone comes on board and they just understand like this, if they've never tracked their calories before, most people can like put a dent 
in the amount of body fat that they want to lose, right? But once we get to the point where, especially if it's like a, I'm a relatively lean person trying to get leaner, it might not even be shredded, but a relatively lean person trying to get leaner, then we're in the place where like, hey, if you're playing this flexible dieting game too much, you're just not going to have enough room to, um, or you're not going to be able to get full from the amount of foods that we're eating. We're really going to struggle to hit your micronutrient intake, which in turn is going to make this process harder. That's going to be less beneficial for your health. So I do still like, now on the flip side, we have to look at, first of all, what is, um, what's realistic for the client, right? So one of the most important things we talk through with clients is kind of the trade-offs that you're choosing. So, Hey, okay. You want to start, like, let's say you are taking a much more flexible approach. All right. So the reality is like, if we're, let's say going out to eat three, four times a week. Hey, I'm not here to say that's good or bad. But what I want you to understand is there's, first of all, there's a lot of room for error there. So that probably will slow your progress. Also, like if we create like a structure for what your day should look like, like, Hey, here's some foods that I want you to focus on. Here's different nutrients that I want you to focus on. Like that's up to you at the end of the day, whether you want to prioritize these or not. But I also want you to understand like how this could impact your health and your results. And at the end of the day, that's your decision. And like where everyone falls in that line will be different. And I like to make sure like the client's educated on that and they're the one making the choice. But what I'll say, and still, I think like for most people, like understanding, hey, I can occasionally work in a date night or something of that nature is still valuable. So we still try to make room for that. But also I've said this over and over on podcasts, but I, I've heard Jordan Lips say, I think he had a post that was like, your calorie deficit shouldn't be your best life. And that's kind of the idea I like to, I try to get across to clients where there's so much marketing right now that's like, here's how you can lose 30 pounds without ever giving up any of your favorite foods and drinking five glasses of wine a night. Where like, that's just not the reality for very many people. So I like to make sure people understand like, hey, they're like this fat loss phases they will be a challenge. But so many people turn like what could be a three to five month fat loss phase into like a year and a half process because they are trying to flexible diet so much. There's so much more room for error that it just takes so much longer than needed. It's mentally brutal. And then after that, they're just so exhausted that they typically rebound. Whereas we can really buckle down. And again, it doesn't have to be like hundred percent you're following a meal plan or anything of that nature, but we really try to keep the flexibility to a relative minimum. Let's just get this over with sooner rather than later. So we can get you back to maintenance. You can't eat more food. You probably will have a little bit more flexibility. And then again, we're like, we have more food coming in as a whole. So like, if you do want to like work in more wine or whatever it may be, because again, like in this case, I'm not talking about working with bodybuilders, but just like a normal person who like wants more flexibility in their day to day, like then we will have more room for that. But I think in most not all, but most instances, getting that fat loss phase over with, like if we can get it done a little bit quicker, I typically am going to err towards that, which typically comes with a less of an IAFYM approach. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I think, I think setting those expectations too, or, and not, not necessarily well, expectations, but also just like the trade-offs. That's one thing I really learned from you, Jeremiah. I was just kind of talking to the client about, okay, that's fine. Like if this is what you want to do, like here's kind of the trade-offs of it. And, you know, it, like you said, the more flexible you are, you know, you just have to be like, Hey, this is going to be a little bit tougher to to stick with. Um, and I think that's, that's very valuable, really kind of telling the clients the trade-off because then I think they, you know, they come at it, they can think about it and then they actually feel like they can make that that choice themselves in terms of what they want to do rather than you being like you have you have to do this right um but it's kind of funny because i feel like this uh i don't know how you guys feel about this but when it comes to like fitness stuff i feel like and i've always heard this was the case and now that we're getting more experience in this field everything's kind of on a pendulum right where it's like 
when, when you first get in the pendulum was over here, it's like, Hey, you can't eat any, it's gotta be, you know, chicken, broccoli, rice. And then the pendulum swung way on this side where it was like, Hey, you can eat whatever the hell you want and you can lose weight. Now I feel like it's, it's coming back, you know, th this way a little bit. And I think it's probably a good thing, right? Because I think we're finding out that, you know, just being super flexible and, you know, kind of like Jeremiah said, the macro Tetris just probably isn't going to be the best because again, you're going to be missing out on certain micronutrients, which, you know, maybe you can get away with that a little bit more in the beginning of a fat loss phase, but as you get further into it, and as Brandon alluded to the digging phase, that's going to get tougher and tougher. And it's going to be tougher for you to stick to, to what you're doing. And you're just going to kind of feel like crap too. Right. And I think that's where a lot of people get stuck is they, they do try to fit too many tasty foods in, and then they end up just feeling super depleted. Um, you know, they're missing out on, you know, they have, now they have the micronutrient deficiency, like Brandon talked about. And, you know, that's just going to make everything you do much tougher. And you're just, you're just not going to be in the best position health wise with that. Right. So definitely I think making sure you have a good base of, of nutrient dense whole foods is, is going to be the way to go. But like Jeremiah said, if you want to throw in a little bit, have a little flexibility in there again, just kind of talking about those trade-offs and realizing, you know, it is going to get tougher the further you get into your fat loss phase. And I think also it, it, it is important to note that like, you know, somebody at 15% is going to have a little bit more wiggle room than somebody who is at, you know, five to 10%, right? Like you're, there's going to be a little bit more wiggle room there with that. Um, so, and then obviously, you know, how far you've come to like how much weight you've lost, like that's going to play a role in this as well. Uh, but I do think that if you want to set yourself up best, it's, it's probably good to at least, I think the 80, 20 rule, that's what's kind of thrown around out there. I think that's a, the solid number, 80%, you know, whole foods, 20% more process. And then maybe as you get deeper into the fat loss phase, you're going to go closer to 90, 95% with that. Um, and maybe in some cases like Brandon, where you get super lean, maybe you're going almost hundred um, percent on that. Yeah. And, and honestly, let me head on that. I, I don't believe in extremes in either direction. So I think that's my biggest issue with the industry is because they go into these, they, they slide between the swings of a pendulum and they yep. don't have enough moderation, both in terms of their action or even in their mindset. So when I speak about avoiding hyperplatable foods, it's not that you can't have you know a, a wide variety of food selection like i have you know jeremiah and what i consider like a flexibly structured meal template or a meal plan and essentially he has food choices but there are suggestions on there what are going to keep him most satiated what are going to hit his micronutrient needs based on you know what i've done on the back end what are going to make sure that he's fill, you know he's full that he's performing well in the gym his digestion's in a good place and that he's able to perform in and out of the gym and then also the biggest thing for me is just being a critical thinker and being like is this worth it you know for every give me there's a gotcha but when it comes down to contest prep and that budget is very small. It's just like in the, in the fact of like your finances, if you didn't have the money to go out every weekend and, and gamble, you probably shouldn't be doing that. If you can't pay your rent, you shouldn't be gambling. So the same thing with like your, your calorie budget, if you don't have enough room to, or you only have enough room to get micronutrient dense, whole, mostly whole foods, and maybe a little flexibility, obviously within sources of protein and, and carbohydrates and fat sources, but they're mostly whole, minimally processed foods that are going to help both from a satiation perspective and adherence perspective. So you can, the biggest thing with all of this is sticking to the energy deficit, but you're, if you're eating foods, especially hyperplatable foods, processed foods, chips and cookies and things of that sort that are going to drive not only your appetite, but they're going to leave you less satiated and also give you less nutrients per calorie, less satiety per calorie. 
you're almost doing yourself a disservice, especially when we get to those very lean points. So that's why I took it from the contest prep scenario. But even with my lifestyle clients, I, I put in a ton more flexibility. But at the same time, I want them to be conscious in their decisions. I want them to mindfully eat. I want them to know about the benefits of food quality and realizing that we can set ourselves up, you know, every decision we make can either set ourselves up for success or for failure. And so within the context of fat loss phase, let's bias more of those food selection decisions around those that are going to set us up for success. Do you, do you find too with clients that like the more they have, you know, more processed type food, they crave more of that, that type of food as well? I a hundred percent I do because it's people always say like, I need to satisfy a craving. So I had a little bit of this, but little never starts stops at a little. Most people are not you know, moderators where they can have a little bit and not get it. And we also see in the literature that when the best way, and this is actually what they use in the scientific literature, the best way to kill a craving is they actually use the verbiage, starve a craving. And the reason for that is the less exposure you have to it, the less of that dopamine hit and release that you get from those highly uh, palatable foods. And so within that, if you go and you stay away from them for longer, you're going to have less and less of a drive. It's almost like, for instance, Jeff, have you ever craved a dessert that you've never had? Like if you've never had, you know, uh, you know, banana split, you know, ice cream, never craved it because no. you never got exposed to it. But if you had it and you really loved it, that might be something you start thinking about more often, especially in a diet where your hunger's already increased, your appetite's increased, you're having all these skewing and satiety hormones. And like, there's also sensory specific satiety. So when we stick with mostly the same type of foods, we become more accustomed to those foods, but we also get a quicker satiety or a better fullness response to those foods. But when you throw in a bunch of different flavors and a different variety, or you'll notice you always have that second uh, stomach for dessert, it's because it's such a deviation from the flavors that you just had within the context of a meal. So you could have filled yourself with all these highly, you know, highly satiating foods, but then you add in chocolate or you add in ice cream or you add in cookies. And I'm not here to demonize, like to put foods in black and white. It's not that foods are good and bad. It's that foods are maybe more compatible for your goal and less compatible for your goal at this time. And if fat loss, and ex especially extreme fat loss in the context of a contest prep is your goal, you should probably go with foods that are more compatible with both your energy budget, as well as your ability to adhere and not overeat. Yeah. And, and we, we have research to back this up too, right? Kevin Hall's study was super helpful with the processed food. And I know you guys, I, I've heard you guys bring this up a couple of times about, um, and I don't know the exact study, maybe you guys can fill me in on this, but the one where it, uh, it basically showed that like processed foods, like the thermic effect of feet food was a little bit lower on those versus the uh, yeah, more so, whole foods. Yeah. So there's a study by Barr, I believe in 2010. And what they did was they looked at processed foods versus unprocessed foods in the context. It was just a sandwich. So really what they did was they did like a whole grain and natural natural cheese sandwich. And they compared that in an isoenergetic scenario. So meaning calories equated, they gave the same amount of calories from the, the whole food minimally processed sandwich versus the processed sandwich. And when they looked at the thermic effect of feeding in the unprocessed or, you know, the, the minimally processed food where it was a whole grain bread, natural cheese, they had a thermic effect of feeding of, of 20%. And now when they did the uh, processed version, which was like white bread and it was like um, like American cheese, like that sliced cheese or like I always think of Velveeta. That's kind of how they described in the study, like that fake cheese, like you would get at like a uh, movie theater where you're dipping like chips in it. When they looked at the thermic effect of feeding of that, it was 10.4 or 10.7. Um, and so it was, it was roughly half. So even within the context of that, let's look at that. Let's extrapolate that over the course of the day. You're not only getting, you're not only less satiated from that 
that processed version of that same sandwich, that same calories from a sandwich, but you're also getting less of a thermic effect of food response. So there's a lot of things that come into consideration. When we look at the Kevin Hall study, even in a scenario where they matched everything from your calories to your sodium, to your carbohydrates, your proteins, and your fats within both groups, and then they let them eat to fullness, they saw that the same group of people, because it was a crossover study. So both, you know, everyone in the study themselves, they went through both of the two-week interventions. They saw that in the processed food intervention, when they were given the same type of macros, they ended up consuming over 500 calories more per day, and they gained 2.2 um, pounds. And now when they went into the unprocessed condition where it was whole foods and it was fruits and vegetables and whole grains and lean protein sources, they ate 500 calories less per day and lost two pounds. And that was in a scenario where it wasn't a weight loss or weight gain study. This was just letting people in the lab controlled scenario, listen, eat to fullness, eat to where you're satiated. And what's interesting about this study is when they reported back their feelings of fullness, you don't see any difference in satiety uh, scores between the two. So you might think to yourself, well, I thought that you know, um, processed foods were less satiating than whole foods. But if you think about it, yeah, they are. That's why they ate over 500 calories more per day. And so, yeah, they had the same satiety and fullness scores, but they also ate, an, you know, they also gained a pound per week as a result of trying to hit that same level of satiety because we don't eat, like a lot of people think that we eat just for calorie needs and that's not it. We eat for volumetrics. We eat for uh, um, protein targets. You know, there's a protein leverage hypothesis. There's also a fiber intake. So we're going to feel more full from lean protein sources, low energy density, fruits and vegetables, things that are high in fiber, have a lot of water content that fill up our stomach and, and push on those gastric receptors that signal to the brain, hey, we're full, stop eating. Yeah, I, I've seen that we're we're better at like managing how much food we eat rather than how many calories we eat. So it's like if you're going to eat more calorie dense food, you're just naturally going to eat like more food. And th therefore, you're going to get or you're going to eat the same amount of food, but you're going to get more calories for it. And so that obviously can, can add up. So um, cool. Let's let's go on. Did you guys have anything else you wanted to share on, on that topic? All right. So next one is, do you think a coach needs to be evidence based to be a quality coach? Wants to go first on this. I can, I, 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 I can, I can give my thoughts on this real quick. Um, I think, do I think they need to be evidence based to be a quality coach? I, man, that's, I, I would say, so I, I think the first thing here that I want to hit on is, you know, my understanding of evidence-based is like, I think a lot of people think it's like, Hey, this person knows science. Right. And like, that's part of it, but it's also, you know, your own personal experience. Um, and so it's your personal experience science. And I think there's one more that I'm missing here. It is so evidence-based is a three-pronged model. And essentially what it, it what it dictates, it comes from evidence-based practice within medicine. And what it dictates or, or what it states is that we are to weigh out things like a piece of a pie and each of them have a third. So it is the best in the research evidence. So the body of evidence and what that literature states, the peer-reviewed literature, it is the experience of the practitioner. So in the medical field, it would be the doctor. And in our case, it would be the coach. And then it is the experience, the preferences, the abilities, and the needs of the client that you're working with forgot about the client dang it yeah so i i knew i knew it was a three-pronged approach so so basically again it's like you know to me you know when you when i hear that it's like i do think that if you want to be the best like if you want to continue to improve yourself you almost do need to be evidence-based because you know you are gonna you know i think if you're somebody that does just base it off the science it's like okay the science could say that but if it doesn't fit your client then it doesn't really matter right or if um you know maybe for example uh you know, like 
again, if, I, I think it just needs to, you, you have to combine all of those in order for that to, to work out. And so that's kind of my thoughts on it. I know that's not much, but um, you know, I, I think that people forget about the client aspect of it too, right? It's like, if, you know, if four servings of protein, you know, whatever the recommendation is, doesn't work for them. It's like, well, it doesn't, you know, really matter. Like you have to help them the best that they can and they have to be able to stick to it. So um, kind of my thoughts on it. I don't know if there, I'm sure you guys have a lot more that you want to add to it. Yeah, no. So I had this uh, directly um, proposed to me by someone that is really big into evidence-based practice or evidence-based research. And so he wanted to hear my opinion because often I will speak on research, but at the same time, I often bring my own anecdotes and my client experiences and I value both. And so first, I think that evidence-based coaching is a term that's thrown around a lot, but it's often misapplied and misconstrued in the process. So a lot of people don't even realize the three prongs. You know what I mean? They don't even realize there's three components. They think it's just, you know, about research and being evidence-based isn't just about having the ability to read and interpret research studies and statistics and then promoting those principles, but it's also about being able to take methods and approaches that are depicted and backed up by quality evidence and a large body of the literature. It's not about just one study. Like it is about the body of the evidence. What is that leaning towards? What is that pointing towards? And then being able to properly apply them in your real world practice to your actual clients. And here's the thing. There's a lot of people that are quote unquote evidence-based coaches. They don't coach anyone. So they don't even have the experience as a clinician or as a, as an actual practitioner, nor do they have any real world experience with clients. And that's all well and good. If you are a researcher, stick in your lane, stay in your lane. Don't speak about clients or what you should do with clients because you only know what the evidence states. And that is a very valuable component, but you should be a science communicator, not someone trying to pass off as a practitioner. So in my case, although I'm, you guys both know this, I'm extremely interested and intrigued by what is being tested and looked at in the research. And my approach to coaching is is definitely has an evidence-based backing to it. I'm also a huge believer in anecdotal experience and considering the inter-individuality of each client that I work with. And you know, this is due to the fact that we shouldn't solely rely on what is shown in the research because extrapolating data is only applicable if you as a coach can interpret that data correctly. And there's so many in this field that don't even understand statistics and they don't read past the abstract. And Jeremiah and I always talk about this. Like, there's a lot of people that they're abstract scientists. They'll send you an abstract, but they didn't read the methods. They didn't read the findings. They didn't read the limitations. They didn't even read who was actually in the study. And if it applies to the actual clients, if the information and the data being depicted is actually suitable and appropriate given the specific client situation that they're dealing with or that you're dealing with. So what we have to realize is there's no one size fits all approach to any problem you face with a client, which is why you can't just rely on what is shown in the research to be the be all end all. And I think when I suggest or I speak about research, or even when I have this, you know, you know, questions around this proposed to me, I think really what it comes down to is the best approach is to stay up to date on what the research says and what the latest research is coming out that's specific to the sections of the population that you work with, whether that be, you know, lifestyle or genu- uh, general population or competitors or competitive athletes. And then you use the anecdotal experience that you've garnished and you've gained in the trenches and you've developed during your time working with actual people. And you apply them in a mixture and you, you apply the best methods because ultimately research is just a foundation. It is a guide. 
And you could build some of your coaching principles off of it, but you shouldn't use it as these hard and fast rules as you have to consider your experience as well as your client's experiences. And then the responses that you see from each individual that you work with, because those are just as important as the principles and the information that you see in the literature. And so we have to combine all of those. So yes, I do believe that if someone wants to be the best coach possible, you can't just ignore what the evidence is saying. You can't just do an approach and that you know, or you know, you don't know because you didn't look into it, but that is, you know, disproven. You know, you shouldn't utilize it, especially if it's doing harm to your clients. But at the same time, you need to get in the trenches. You need to get your hands dirty and you need to realize that everyone's an individual. And this actually brings me back, you know, um, Jeremiah consulted me about a client earlier this week. And like what I have showed him from the research for blood work would indicate, hey, we should do this with this individual. But when I looked at more of the context of the situation itself, I told him, listen, that's not what I would do. Because based on my experience with hundreds of people in a very similar scenario, this is how I would go about it. And this is where research can't test that because they're only looking at isolated variables and they're only doing, they're only showing you what is the best out of protocol A and protocol B. But Jeremiah had protocol C. They didn't even investigate that. So taking that evidence and, and that research and applying it to that that client that it doesn't fit with isn't useful and isn't going to be helpful in that scenario. That And that's where we really have to value and really try to accumulate knowledge, collect data. That's why I'm really into tracking metrics and biomarkers and looking at all these things that no one in the literature, no one in the research is really looking at except in the health sphere. But I'm taking research from, you know, I'm taking experience and data from that field and I'm combining with sports nutrition and I'm, I'm doing, you know, applying it to sports science and hypertrophy research and, you know, uh, nutrition research and all these other things to be able to have a more comprehensive model to my coach. Absolutely. I, I fully agree. I think that all three of those prongs are needed to be the best possible coach. But again, I think that the term evidence-based coach, I believe in like 2017, 2018 is really when I started seeing people brand themselves as evidence-based coaches. And I think basically what it's turned into is like, do you spout off a lot of science or not? Do you references a, reference a lot of studies or not? And it kind of like reminds me of, I don't know if you guys have seen this, but there was like for the longest time, and I've somewhat fallen into this camp as well. Now I'm like, damn, I probably should have like done more research there. But with like the the lat pull down thing where it's like, hey, the wide grip lat pull down is no lats. No, for the longest time, of course, it's like a wide grip <laughs> lat pull down. Now it's like, hey, everybody needs to do a neutral grip lat pull down or a chest supported lat pull down. And now it's like back to, hey, actually, now we have new research potentially that seems to show, hey, maybe the wide grip lat pull down is a good <laughs> movement for your lats. So I think it's like, if I think again, it's like if we could just look at science and experience and what's optimal for the client. I, I don't really have much to add there outside of just like, I think all three of those pieces need to be very important. And I think that a lot of times coaches get too caught up in, honestly, I think at least from my perspective, like rather than trying to be the best at interpreting the research right now, for me, the most helpful thing has been going, our team, the most helpful thing has been going to like, who seems to be helping their clients the best, getting their clients the best results, helping them achieve the best health. And let's like go learn what they're doing rather than like just, okay, what is, I don't, I don't know. That's kind of the approach that I found to be the most beneficial, at least at this point. Yeah, no, I agree. And and I think the the science aspect of it is important too, like you hit on brain. And I, th I feel like I've talked about this a lot lately. I know we've chatted about this too, like just 
how you need to be able to interpret what is actually going on in the studies too, because it can be so easy. Like you could literally find a study for anything that you want to, you know, like to find fit your narrative you or your pick. bias. Yeah. You could cherry pick. Right. And like, for example, one that pops up right now, and I, I haven't done any research into this at all. So I'm just saying what I've seen is I know a lot of people are throwing out things from the new uh, NNS, the, the sweeteners, the artificial sweeteners uh, study. I know late uh, late Norton's been all over it. And he's, you know, you know, once people kind of dive into it, they're like, oh, well, this was how they did the study. This was what they did it in. And it's just like, damn, okay, there's a lot that you need to unpack here. And like you said, you can't just read like the abstract and then that that's it. Right. Cause there's been a lot of times where it's like, oh, wow, I didn't realize that that's who they did it, who the, who the um, population was. Right. And that definitely makes a, a big difference. So I think it's uh, super important. So, um, but yeah, no, that, that, that was a good conversation on, on evidence-based. I think everybody has a better understanding of what that is now. And it's again, not just reading science. So Let's go uh, to this. I think this will be a good question. So what's the best periodization model for gaining muscle? <laughs> oh, man. That is quite the question. Um, specific to training periodization? Yeah, this was uh, training periodization for building muscle. I don't know if, if you, you want to take it, you want me to take it? Uh, I mean, from my perspective, I honestly don't think that from a muscle from a muscle growth perspective, to my knowledge, I don't think we have a ton that indicates we necessarily need to use any specific type of periodization, right? I think it's going to be whatever keeps the client engaged and pushing hard. But the reality is like, um, and Brandon, I know we've talked quite a bit about like different periodization models in the industry where we move through different phases. And I know like that's something we've very much gotten away from where I think the reality is for a lot of people, if we find movements that seem to like, hey, you get a good pump, you get a good disruption, um, we can consistently add load over time. We could probably do that shit for 12, 18 months straight and continue to get in the same rep ranges and continue to get great results. So honestly, like I think for hypertrophy specifically, I like to like within that, like the whole like lengthen, shorten and shorten versus lengthen and like what order do these exercises go? Even within that, like I really don't think that that matters that much. I kind of like see that as like uh, where my head has gone with all of that is like I really like to keep exercise selection very, very, very similar. Even rep ranges where most of the time going to be working in like the eight to 15 rep range. And that's going to be more dependent on like rep ranges specific to a movement. Um, like a lateral raise is typically going to be biased better towards like the 10 to 15 rep range, let's say, but past that point, honestly, like outside of like, I like to, for clients who do need more of this to stay engaged, I like to kind of shift somewhat exercise sequencing from time to time. So like, Hey, maybe here we're like working like short and first and then lengthened. And then maybe like this next phase, we are like doing more lengthened and then shorten. And we know you're going to hit like hella PRs on these lengthened movements because before we were doing like a shortened and then a lengthened moving into a lengthened movement afterwards. But I don't think that actually matters very much at all. Again, like I think in the most opt, if we were looking at the most optimal, it would probably be, you're going to keep your shit the same for like 12 to 18 months and probably not touch anything and just try to progress this over time. Maybe if you started getting some joint pain, maybe if your pumps, your disruption started wearing off, we would like swap out that movement for a similar variation. But honestly, this is probably like against what the listener wants to hear, but I would say like the most optimal type of periodization for hypertrophy would probably be actually just keeping everything the same for a very long time and continuing to progress that. I don't know if you guys have different thoughts there. Oh, you know, I, I actually want to hit on this because a year ago, 
Jeremiah, you would have given a completely different answer. And it just shows, it shows me the growth, which I love seeing. So I, I do want to acknowledge that. And in this person's case, so I, I, you know, I used to really dislike when we used to do Q and A's and people would ask, what's the best this. And so now I look at it as an opportunity to kind of get the person to critically think I used to hate being put in that position where I had to give a direct answer. And I've, I've covered this off air with both of you guys, like certain questions, like it's really hard for me to, to answer because there's so much context to take in consideration. It's who the person uh, is, what the client's goals are, what their needs are what their limitations are, what their history is. But really, this is a great question because we generally see that as long as volume is equated between groups and between programs, no one model of periodization used within a program has been shown to be superior for muscle growth. So it really comes down to what style of periodization allows you to handle the highest level of volume that's adequate and sufficient for you and what you need to make progress. And how does this model facilitate recovery from that training? So, you know, but we also have to take in consideration. So we have linear, we have reverse linear periodization. We have undulating periodization. And a lot of times people put them in boxes and that's an issue we have in this entire industry. There's always these extremes. Everyone's in this different camp and I always tend to gravitate towards the middle. So I'm going to give you guys my opinion, but I also am going to give you some, some backing as to why I think not that it doesn't matter because I don't want to go into this um, nihilistic viewpoint that we often get into. So a lot of people have one or two viewpoints. It's either this is the best or they're nihilistic in the fact that they say nothing matters. So meal timing, it's either you eat six meals a day and it's on point or nothing matters. Eat one meal a day or eat seven meals a day. And we, we know that in the middle, three to five, generally what the research shows to be best. And so we need to, instead of taking either extreme, I kind of... You know, I like a mixed model of periodization based on the person that I'm working with. But I think if we really were to analyze it, almost any well-rounded hypertrophy program, there's going to be principles from each model of periodization mixed in. So a lot of times we'll hear like with linear periodization, better for strength outcomes because you're decreasing volume and increasing intensity throughout the course of a mesocycle. So essentially that will help you peak for strength. And I have utilized that with strength-focused athletes, with power lifters, um, with strongmen. I have actually utilized that with... Um, some weight restricted athletes like MMA fighters that I've worked with where I've tried to decrease their volume throughout the course of a mesocycle as we're leading in. So I'm really just trying to get high quality, you know, um, effective work, making sure they're at their highest amount of strength towards the end of their, their mesocycle. But really, if we even look at like undulating periodization, which is something that I kind of tend to go towards because it's a mix of everything. Like if you increase load during the course of a training cycle, you're making an increase in absolute intensity. So what is that? That's an example of linear periodization. So you're utilizing the key principle of linear periodization within any other principle, any other periodization model that you're utilizing. So if I had to label like what I generally use within my own programming in terms of a periodization model, I'm definitely more of a fan of undulating periodization, which is kind of what Jeremiah was describing. He just didn't put a name to it. So really undulating periodization is where we pretty much rotate between volume intensity throughout the course of a mesocycle, whether that be session to session. So you can have daily undulating periodization or week to week, which would be weekly undulating periodization. So within many of my own programs, I'll utilize different rep ranges uh, on different days for the same muscle group. And then I'm often going to pair rep ranges kind of like Jeremiah was saying, with exercises that are best suited for those rep ranges. So generally, I'll go with like lower and moderate rep ranges on compound exercises. 
and then moderate to higher rep ranges with isolation exercises. But it, there's not one stock standard approach. And when we actually look at the literature that compares, you know, one periodization model to another, as long as they've done the same amount of volume within, say, that six-week mesocycle or that eight-week mesocycle, they have the same outcomes. So this is really where I would say hypertrophy is a forgiving stimulus, meaning we can get there. There's many roads to Rome. So it's really important to realize this and to, you know, have an open mind and not go with one camp or let someone sell you on something because you have to realize, especially within the world of fitness, of nutrition, of training, a lot of times people are trying to sell programs. So they're going to use the verbiage. This is the best, you know, that's like me telling everyone the best protein source is, you know, ribeye. You know I mean? I'm in the carnivore camp, you know what I mean? It's ribeye and that's it. And that's what you need to eat. No, there's many roads that lead to Rome. It's based on your individual needs, your preferences. But when it really comes down to it, I like the variety that undulating periodization allows us to utilize within the context of a training program. Yeah. So. I actually have the secret periodization plan. Lay it on us. I'm just joking. Um, no, I, I agree with you guys. I think that, uh, so kind of what Jeremiah said, obviously, you know, I think, especially as a beginner, I think the more consistent you can stay with what you're doing, the better that's going to be. You don't really need to make a lot of changes. But again, this is where we have to go back to, you know, we have to take the client into consideration. You know, you do probably want to make some changes to keep them interested because at the end of the day, we just want to get them to stay consistent, right? So, um, but I do think that staying consistent, and I guess, I guess it would be undulating periodization then that I like to use too, where it's not just one rep range that we're using like throughout a mesocycle. It's, you know, like certain exercises are going to have different ones, different muscle groups are going to have maybe like five to seven for one, eight to 12 for another, right? Um, but I do think that, you know, as you get a little bit more advanced, you probably do want to have some sort of like variation in there in terms of like exercise selection, just to keep, just from an injury standpoint, just keep things like, so you're not getting... Because I feel like as you get more advanced, you can things can stale out a little bit sooner. I don't know if you guys feel that way or not, but you also just want to have a little bit more variety in there from an injury um, standpoint too, as you get a little bit more advanced. But I think in the beginning, you could probably get away with having less variety in terms of like exercise selection. But again, you also need to kind of take the client into consideration there and make sure that you're, um, you know, keeping it fresh for them. But the biggest thing for hypertrophy is, you know, you're overloading and the, the intensities there. I think those are the, the two biggest things. And then from whatever can keep you just staying consistent to do that is going to be the most important uh, periodization for building muscle. Yeah. I'll, I mean, I'll say just anecdotally, as I've gained more and more years of experience with the coach as a coach and as clients have gotten better and better results, one, my muscle cycles have gotten longer before we deload, before we change anything up. And two, I change things less from mesocycle to mesocycle. Whereas even Jeff, like if we look at your last three mesocycles, I think we've maybe changed one to two movements over the last like 18 weeks, right? Where, so, and I think before, like that was, I was kind of insecure as a coach and I was like, man, I feel like if I don't change a shit ton up every four weeks, I'm going to lose this client's engagement. But now it's like, I'm so much more confident in saying like, yo, this is what's best for your results. So I think that it's easy to, I, I honestly think that we'll hit the point where we're bored with a movement much quicker or like the mental fatigue of going into a movement is like, maybe it's beneficial from a trade-off perspective there versus the point where we're truly at like outside of like, if there is a lot of pain associated with the movement versus like us actually getting to the point where it's like, Hey, we need to change the movement because it's truly stalled out. I agree with that a hundred percent. And I, 
I pretty much primarily only work with intermediate and advanced and then even really advanced. I mean, people that are more advanced than me. And actually, Jeff, I see something different, to be honest with you, because when you get to a level of advancement, that is when it's hardest to tell if you're actually progressing. So I actually will do less exercise variation. I will do less switching of exercises and I'll keep exercise selection within, um, I don't want to say a constraint, but I'll keep it more consistent. This is the reason for it. When you're moving from movement to movement, you are getting neurological adaptations at the beginning of that mesocycle. So we're not actually seeing growth, but a lot of coaches will switch everything up every four, every eight weeks. They'll utilize short mesocycles. They're constantly changing programs up. And I often refer to this as tricking a client into thinking that they're making progress because they're always switching. They're doing that muscle confusion. We actually had just recent research come out in 2022 that looked at varying exercises versus uh, keeping exercise consistent. And they saw better hypertrophy outcomes when utilizing the consistent exercise selection that was right for that individual. Don't get me wrong. It's not that we're using a stock standard. It's like you have to barbell back squat. You have to bench press. But no, if you cater the exercise selection, you're utilizing movements with a good stimulus fatigue ratio for that individual and for their goals, their biomechanics, and all those other factors that come into consideration, then we're able to really see their progression over the long haul. And I'll tell you, oftentimes I go, you know, I speak about this with Brian Borstein, Dave McConey, guys like that, that have been training, you know, Dave and I have been training 17 years and Brian's 20 plus years into the game. We actually keep things a lot more consistent. He will, Brian specifically will change things up more for his group because these are more lifestyle guys, newer trainees. And so they're, they're just looking for kind of like a buzz. And he also comes from the CrossFit realm when that was very, very prominent to change things up every day, let alone every week or every, you know, every mesocycle. So for them to go six weeks, it's, it's almost like, um, very odd for them. They're not used to that. So that's like a really long period of time. But honestly, with my advanced uh, clients, I'll keep things more consistent unless they have um, some, you know, physical limitations, but I actually really want them to keep things consistent. And I want us to be able to take advantage of their technical uh, proficiency on a movement and really try to progress low to reps to see progressions within that. And then another thing I really like to track or or to get um, notated is to focus on isolation movements as a, a mode of progression, because really when we look into both the literature and I'll tell you from my own perspective, there are times even in a dieting phase where I cannot, you know, I would be more likely to make progress on my compound movements because they're utilizing multiple muscle groups. However, if you see um, that you have a preacher bicep curl and you're making progress within a machine preacher bicep curl over the course of a mesocycle or from mesocycle to mesocycle, we know that you're not really getting better neurologically at that movement. That is something that all of us have been doing you know, bicep curls forever. And it's not a complex movement that involves multiple muscle groups where it's going to be very, uh, need a lot of technical proficiency. You're going to get pretty acclimated to it quickly. So when we see load progressions or um, rep progressions within that movement, it's more of an indication that you've actually created, you've actually accrued more contractile tissue because the more muscle we have, the more force we can actually elicit. So really a bigger muscle should technically be a stronger muscle. And that's a better indication in my opinion. We also see that James Krieger has done a lot on this looking at um, when they look at hypertrophy research, what are the greatest indicators of hypertrophy? What in terms of their training progressions, what movements were the most indicative or most correlated with muscle growth uh, growth in those movements. And it wasn't, you know, the row that was most indicated to bicep growth. It was a progression in their bicep curl or machine curl in these instances. So I really like looking at those type of progressions, but the only way to see those over time and to be able to do a comparative analysis, mesocycle to mesocycle, is to keep things pretty consistent. Yeah. And, and I agree with you guys. I, I definitely 
you definitely don't want to be changing things up on a weekly basis and not necessarily every single mesocyclist. Like you said, that's just going to add a ton of confusion in there. Um, and then I'm, I'm with Jeremiah too, in that I definitely went, and, and this is my own pendulum where it was like years and years ago, it was like D low, you know, what the hell would you need that far? Then it was like, Hey, every four weeks, take a D low. Now it's kind of coming back to where it's like, you know, we probably don't need to take a D load as often as, I was taking them right. Or, or at least, and I know Brandon, you've talked about this too, a less proactive approach to it and a more like, kind of like a little bit more like reactive to it. Like you're not just taking a deload because it's like, Hey, it's been four to six weeks. Let's, you know, if things are going good, like just, let's just keep going with it rather you than know, like kicking a deload. Jeremiah can attest to this. I, I never in my, you know, in my programming, it is, there's, there's weeks like one through seven, and then there's like a blank and it says, you know, to be determined. So I know what your, your RRR progression in terms of relative intensity is going to be. We're going to progress and descend that. So we're going to go from say three to four reps in reserve all the way down to zero reps. But at that point, everything's going to be based off your biofeedback. And I make week to week progressions, whether it's in, uh, you know, volume progressions based on the biofeedback of the client, um, based on what I'm seeing within their, their stress, their lifestyle, their sleep, all these other indices, including their recovery, their pumps, their disruption, and everything's reactive within my programming. And when I first started doing that, it was when there was a lot of templates out, which they still are, but they were becoming a lot more popular. So a lot of people were used to utilizing a four to one paradigm or a five to one paradigm where it was, they would accumulate their training for four or five weeks, then they'd automatically do a one week deload. So coaches would send you know, their clients. And I got a lot of clients from these individuals. So they would send their programs in a templated form and it would be automated. So they would see exactly the progressions, their set progressions, they would increase sets across the mesocycle. And then they have a deload and everything was you know automatically laid out for them six weeks in advance and a lot of times when i would send my programs over to clients they'd say well what am i you know when am i deloading when you need it it's i can't predict we are coaches we aren't you know automated algorithms that we can predict i can't even predict what i'm doing next week in terms of you know if i need a deload or not it's gonna be based on my rate of progress my dietary fatigue my stress levels my sleep quality i can't predict six seven eight weeks out in advance what jeremiah is going to be doing feeling or how he's going to be responding all i could do is use my best skills which is interpreting biofeedback my experience, and then also what I know from the research, which we have no research directly on deloading. Like we have it on tapering, which is is similar, uh, you know, field, but it's in strength sports. So really, you know, the more and more I utilize deloads, it's in a reactive manner. It's based on auto regulation, and oftentimes it's more psychological than it is physiological. Because oftentimes, I, I'll tell you guys personally, I've never had a week where every single lift that I had was regressing, or I had a move or a body part where. Every, you know, every exercise I did for that body part within the context of multiple training sessions, because I do utilize a higher frequency routine where they were regressing. So I've never been towards that point where everything was overreached or everything was really in a regressive fashion, meaning I was going backwards. I was losing reps. You know, you know, I was just feeling fatigued. I had high life stress. I had, you know, lack of sleep. You know, I had something going on or a client had a vacation coming up and that's where it's more of a reactive and auto-regulated based approach rather than saying, hey, set and forget. You guys know I, I always say that. You know, I'm gonna set and forget this program, which a lot of people do. They'll say, listen, you're gonna deload every after every five weeks, you'll have a, a one-week deload. And it's already preset, but it's almost discounting the the client's biofeedback on a week-to-week -week basis. I don't think I have anything else out of that. 
Yeah, no, I, I, I agree um, with all that. And I, I think we summed that up, that one up pretty well. So we're coming in on an hour and a half. Um, let's, I think we should probably wrap this one up. We always, <laughs> we always only get to a couple of the questions. I love it. Um, but a ton of great information. Quality over quantity. Yes. Right. And actually one thing I did want to say um, before we hopped off, Brandon, congrats on getting in Alan Aragon, Alan Aragon's research review, man. That's awesome. Thank um, actually so just, much, man. I finally got to read that the other day. It was really good. Obviously we did a podcast on it and I've heard you talk about it a ton, but it was still good to kind of refresh up on it and stuff like that. So, um, but well, dude, that's, I, that's awesome. I, I really appreciate that first and foremost. And actually, um, I didn't get to announce this on here, but I will be having uh, the opportunity to present along Alan Aragon and a few of my other mentors at the next PEC, which you obviously, Jeff, you went to the last one with me. Jeremiah, you met me down in Dallas when I presented previously. So guys, if anyone out in the audience is looking for an educational summit or a seminar in January, it's going to be the weekend of January 27th and 28th in Tampa, Florida. We're going to have myself presenting. It is going to be Jeff Black, Jason Theobald, Dr. Bill Campbell, Dr. Scott Stevenson, Alan Aragon. Lauren Conlin and Austin Stout. I don't I think I forgot anyone. So it Jeff Sue as well. So that is the panel, and it's going to be a stacked event. And I'm really looking forward to presenting alongside, especially, you know, I love the guys all on the panel. Obviously, I've worked with all those individuals, but specifically Alan Aragon, who's been a mentor of mine for years. I just had the opportunity to write his um headlining feature. And then also Dr. Scott Stevenson, who's been a mentor of mine for years. So it's it's gonna be, you know, it, it's nice for the student to rise up with the uh, the teachers. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's a that that's a really good lineup. And I was gonna ask ask you about that, but um yeah, Dr. Scott Stevenson's really smart. He was at he presented at the last one, but it's cool. Bill Campbell will be there. And so yeah, really really cool, uh really good group this time. So um awesome guys. Well, we will uh do this again in the month of September and uh we'll talk soon. Sounds good. Later.